Good morning again. As I stated a little bit earlier, my name is Alan. I'm, I have the pleasure of serving as the senior pastor here as well as one of the elders. And we are absolutely thrilled that you're worshiping with us this morning. Whether this is your first time or whether you've been here a bunch of times or whether you were here in the past and you're back, we are grateful you're with us. Whether you're worshiping online or, or here in the building, um, we are glad that you are here. Uh, one thing I want to bring to your attention again real quickly is we are having a new member class this uh, afternoon. If you have not signed up for that, it's okay. You can show up and be here. It's at 445. It's upstairs in room 205. There's some snacks provided and then also child care is there as well. So if you're interested in knowing more about our church and whether God might be leading you to become a member of our church, I'd invite you to come and be a part of that. Um, it's interesting while Howard was talking about uh, coming home and how nice that is. Uh, we, as a family, were able to go see our daughter Carson, who lives out in western Colorado now, which is just a slight drive there to see her. Uh, we were able to go uh, during Thanksgiving, had a great time. I was able to catch up on some needed sleep. I, I slept more than I have in a long time, and uh, I knew that we were in good hands here uh, with uh, other pastors and elders and leaders of their church family here. And I know Jacob preached last Sunday and was able to listen to his message. Grateful for him filling in for me. Um, and it was really interesting because there's two aspects of home that I'm thinking about. And one is this. Uh, we had the pleasure of being able to go to church with our daughter in Colorado. And their church meets in a coffee shop. And so I was able to be in an in a intimate environment with people I'd never met before. And yet I knew of a couple of them because of some common friends. And then I knew them because when we came in, they knew our daughter. And they were glad to see her family. And so they welcomed us in and we had this common bond of Christ. And so even though I'd never been in the town before, even though I'd never been in that coffee shop before, even though I'd never uh, met these folks before, we were family as we worshiped together. And on top of that, I had a nice piece of pecan pie during the sermon. So that was great and phenomenal. And then as I think about home, it's nice, as wonderful as that was to be with them and to be with our daughter and to be in Colorado and experience a week of vacation. It is good to be home and to be with y'all. And uh, so let's go ahead and look to God's Word together. If you came in, or you did come in, but when you came in this morning, uh, unless you're worshiping online, um, when you came in this morning, you probably picked up a worship guide, and on the back of the worship guide, there's a place where you can take notes as we go along. I'd encourage you to grab a Bible. If you have one with you, that's awesome. If you don't have one, that's okay too. There's some Bibles uh, in the chairs around you, near you, underneath you, that kind of thing. Grab one of those, use those if you need to. If you don't own a Bible or you know somebody who does need a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That'll be our gift to you. It is what we sometimes refer to as the Advent season or the Christmas season. The word Advent just carries with it this idea of the connotation of waiting. And so the people of Israel were waiting on a coming king. They were waiting on a coming Messiah. And then one day he finally showed up, right? But Advent also carries with it the context of us awaiting today because we are waiting for the Messiah that's coming again, as Howard talked about. And so in this series that we're walking through in the month of, uh, well, a little bit in November and the month of December, is called The Coming King. And we're actually going to walk from Genesis to Revelation. And we're doing that in a couple of ways. One way is here on Sunday mornings. And we're going to kind of chronologically go through. Don't worry, we're not going to cover every book of the Bible as we walk through. 
And then also secondarily, we have a um, Bible study or devotional that we're encouraging you to use, and that's available online. You can go to our website, you can click on uh, a link there to see our Bible study, and each week we have two Bible studies that are attached to it. If you were able to do it over the last couple of weeks, that's awesome. If you weren't, you can go back and use them. And they are kind of filling in the gaps of what it looks like to go from the beginning of time to the time where we stand around the throne of God and see that Jesus is the coming king. And so that's kind of where we're going through our sermon passages and our Bible studies. Uh, Two weeks ago, I started this series by preaching out of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And the premise there was that upon the sin entering into the world, God came in and intervened and said that the time is coming when one of the offspring of Adam and Eve, or specifically Eve, would overthrow Satan and his attacks. And we said that she wouldn't know it, but the reality is that's pointing towards the offspring with the name of Jesus. And all along the way, through the text, as we looked at uh, Genesis 3.15, and then in the Bible study, we looked at a couple of passages in Genesis, and then last week, um, Jacob looked at Exodus and the Passover. Each one of these, we're seeing that along the way, different men would come along, different people that would be offspring or leaders that would bring some kind of redemption or delivery that God would use them to bring, and perhaps with each leader, there was the idea of, could he be the one? But then each one of those men would die and they'd go, well, maybe he wasn't the one after all. And so uh, what we've seen so far is um, Moses with the exodus and how he led the people out of slavery. We, uh, we go on and read the Bible and we see that Joshua was uh, a great leader that took the people into the promised land and maybe he was the one. And then after that we see the book of Judges which is a very interesting read. My D group is reading through that right now and, and in Judges we see just calamity after calamity where the people of God failed to follow God but in each of those scenarios God would raise up a, an individual to bring deliverance from the enemies and perhaps each one of those was the expected one and as it turns out none of those were either and then to kind of set us up with where we're going today I, I want us to read the last verse of judges judges chapter 21 verse 25 um y'all have that on the screen all right there we go um in those days there was no king in israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes that's not a good thing they they were disobedient to god they were doing their own thing and there was no king to lead the way. You see, they needed the coming king. And then you flip over to Samuel, and you see that a man by the name of Samuel comes on the scene. He's kind of the last judge. He's a good judge. And as he begins to get to the age of death, he, he assigns his sons as, as uh, judges. But these men were wicked men. And so as a result of that, the people of God cried out for a king. Here's what it says. It's going to be on the screen. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel. And he said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. In other words, the sons are not leading us well. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They said, All right, we've had enough of these judges. We need a king. We're seeing what the nations around us have, and they have kings, and we want a king as well. If you were to go on and read the next few verses in verse 7, you'll see that God points out that their idea of asking for a king is actually rejecting.
rejecting God as their king. However, even though God gave them kings and they were less than what he desired originally, he used them to point them to the true coming king. Okay, So I want us to see that we're now going to read about a king, and we're going to see how God used him not as the coming king, but pointing to the coming king who would come by the name of Jesus. Before we get to the life of David, we see that Saul becomes the first king of, of the people of Israel. We're not going to take the time to read it, but if you might want to jot it down. 1 Samuel chapter 13, if you read that section, you'll see that God comes to Saul and says, because of your disobedience, I am removing you and you will no longer be king and your house will not rule over the nation of Israel. There is a new king coming and you aren't that king. All right? So... I want us to um, move to 1 Corinthians, sorry, I, I say Corinthians, Chronicles, it's in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles, if you don't know where it is in your Bible, go to the front, there's a table of contents, find it, it's in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles chapter 17, this is our text for today, it's King David, and it's on the hills of the fact that King David came in, became the king of Israel, he, he, he set up shop, if you will, in Jerusalem and made it his capital city. Let's read this together. First Chronicles chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Now, when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, behold, I dwell in a house or a palace of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord, we'll talk about that in a moment, is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, do all that is in your heart for God is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and here's what God said. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will dwell, uh, sorry, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in for I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Did I ever say to them, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you, that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. That's talking about Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. You might have seen at the top of the outline, it says that the title of the message is A House Built by God. And, and Howard mentioned houses and homes just a moment ago. And it's like, think about a house built 
by God in the context of David asking, can I build you a temple, God? It reminded me of a time when I was a kid. When I was a kid, my childhood home church was First Baptist Church in Commerce, Texas. And we had a church building that to me did not seem complete. It did not have a steeple on top of it. Well, one day our pastor stood up and he explained that we were going, we were going to be building a new church building. That they were going to build a new sanctuary. And I remember that when search was over with, I met him out front and I shook his hand and I said, I'm glad we're getting a church. Now I expect there to be a steeple on top of it. Because to me, a church had to have a steeple. Well, we actually moved from there to White House, Texas before they built the building. And so I never got to experience that church with that steeple. We joined a church in White House that did have a steeple. But anyway... I say all that to say I've worshipped in all kinds of buildings before. I mentioned my daughter's church meets in a coffee shop, right? I've worshipped in other buildings. There was a church that we were a part of in Louisiana that was an elaborate sanctuary, to put it lightly. They had huge stained glass windows. They had a humongous, expensive chandelier. They had pipe organs, and they had a super tall steeple. I've served as a a pastor in a country church, and in this country church, it was a white frame building, and there were no light switches on the wall. There were only drawstrings that you would pull down to turn the lights on. There was no running water in the building, aka no bathroom there. there. There was no central heat or air. It was a simple building. I've been a part of a church plant where we met in a movie theater, and then we stopped meeting in a movie theater, and we began to meet in a skating rink. And here in Living Hope, we worship in a worship center or a sanctuary that actually doubles as a gym, right? So there's all kinds of architectural designs for church buildings. Everything that a church does when they set up a place where they meet should point them towards a place to honor God. And so here is David He's desiring to build a place that would honor God. And the reason he does that is because he's set up shop in Jerusalem. He's built a house that's built out of cedar. And basically what it's saying is it cost a lot of money because we had to have the cedar brought in from another country. And it wasn't easy to get here. And it's a nice palace. And yet the Ark of the Covenant is sitting under just a simple tent. And he felt somewhat guilty that perhaps the house of God should be more elaborate than just a tent when he had a nice home. The Ark of the Covenant was simply a chest or a box that God described for them to build, and it had within it the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the law. It had um, Aaron or Moses' rod, staff. It had other things in it, and it was set aside as a reminder of God's presence with them. And so I want us to take this concept of a house or a home, because in this text, you saw the word house mentioned several times, right? David says, I'm living in a cedar house. He's saying, God, I want to build you a house. God's saying, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. This concept of a house keeps coming up and over and over again. The word house in the Hebrew can carry a couple of contexts. And one is a physical building. A physical building that you can walk into, that you can live in, that you can worship in. But also a house can represent a legacy or, or, or a household or a dynasty. And so... Whenever David saw that he should build, in his mind, a more elaborate building for God, he shares that with Nathan, and Nathan goes, go for it, big boy, because he knows that David's heart is pure in this regard. But Nathan doesn't know that God has other plans. So there, beginning in verse, I believe, 4 or 3, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, hold off. 
David's not the guy to build the house for me. There's a couple of words in this text, or phrases. Verse 4 and verse 7 have these phrases. The phrase is this, thus says the Lord. Anytime in the scripture you read the words, thus says the Lord, please pay attention. Because God, with his authority, his sovereignty, his reign, and his rule, he's saying, this is my word, this is my verdict, do this thing. And so we know that whenever he shared these words with Nathan, these are clear and important and must be followed. So what does he say to him? I'm going to do a quick rundown, look down at the text. In verse 4, we see that he says to David, you will not build me a home or a house. You will not build me a temple. Verse 8, he says, David, I'm going to make your name great. And we find out that David is the greatest king of Israel throughout all the years, the most highly respected king. And then in verses 9 and 10, he says, I'm going to give a place, God does, for my people Israel. And it's going to be a place where their enemies are subdued. There's going to be peace and rest. And the reality is God uses David to bring that peace and rest so that God's temple could be built. In verse 10, you also see that God tells him, I will build you a house. And he's not saying, David, you've already, you, you don't have a house that's good enough. I'm going to build you a new house. No, when he says, David, I'm going to build you a house, what he means by that is I'm going to build from you a dynasty, your household, your legacy. I'm going to use you because, verse 11 says, I'm going to raise your offspring in order that he will become king and I will establish his kingdom. So verse 11, when it says, I will raise him up, that's talking about Solomon, King David's son, who would become king. Verse 12, he says that this king, Solomon, will build a house or a temple for me. In verses 12 and 14, God says, I'm going to establish Solomon's throne forever. I'm going to make him into a great dynasty. And then in verse 13, he says, don't worry. You look back at what I did with Saul. I removed my hand of guidance and leadership on Saul. I removed him. He no longer is king. Now I've inserted your family. I'm not going to do the same thing to you because Solomon's kingdom will last, it says, forever. All right. So we need to kind of have this as our umbrella, our understanding of what's going on in the text. You see, David had planned to build something for God. And God says, no, instead of you building something for me, I have plans to build something for you and with you and through you. Now, I want to press pause for just a second. If you've ever read, you're like, thank goodness you said about four million words just then. If you've ever read much of the Old Testament, you're probably familiar with First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. And some of the stories are retold and repeated in some of those, Right? And you're like, why is that? And you're like, I don't really know. And so we think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. They're repeated there too, right? There's a difference between the repetition in the New Testament and the repetition in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written about the same time, right? But in the Old Testament, they weren't. You see, whenever Chronicles was written, which is where we just read from, First and Second Chronicles, they were written some 500 years after David was alive. Whereas in First and Second Samuel, it would have been more contemporary to when he was alive. Okay? So it's retelling the history instead of writing the current events. All right? Does that make sense? So they're looking back in the Chronicles at what has transpired thus far. And here's the reason why. 
If you know much about the history of Israel, you'll know that they were taken captive and taken to Babylon and Assyria through the years, and their country was ransacked, and they were exiled, right? They were taken into exile. This book was written after they're back in Jerusalem, after the exile, and after they're looking back at the history of their people and how things didn't quite go as they planned. Because here's the deal. When Chronicles was written, it was after the exile. The temple that they're talking about Solomon building has already been destroyed. So the temple is not something that's going to happen. It's already been built and it's now been destroyed. David's monarchy is no more. There is no king of Israel. And the state or nation of Judah is no longer as well. And so as the readers read this, there could be a chance where they go, wait a minute. You said you were going to build a dynasty among David and Solomon and those that followed him and that they'd be on the throne forever and that throne doesn't exist anymore. You said that Solomon's going to build a temple and that temple's no longer here with us. What is going on? So it's an interesting time frame. It could even be, where is this offspring? You've promised an offspring is coming. Where is he? The reality is this story is much bigger than David, Solomon, and Israel. This story is pointing to the coming king. So I want us to now take this phrase or this word house or home and consider what it might mean to our lives as we look at the story. Here's the first point. It's there on your notes. If you're with us in the past, you may wonder, why did he talk so long and now he's to the points? Because the points don't take the whole time. I need to get us to where we're going. So here's what the first point says. The first point says this, God had always been at home among his people. He'd always been at home among his people. David was concerned, I need to build a home or a house for God. And God's going, I don't really need you to build me a house because I've always been with my people, whether there's a building or not. In fact, you're doing it how I've asked you to do, because if you read the book of Exodus, you'll see a clear description of how to build this tent, how to build the tabernacle, how to build the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And, and he says in his conversation, when he goes, David, I don't need a house. Look down with me at um, verse 5 and 6. I've not lived in a house since the day you left is, uh, Egypt. And I've gone from tent to tent, from dwelling to dwelling, and all the places I, I've moved with you and your people. And what he's saying is this. Don't be concerned about me needing a house to dwell in because I am at home with my people. Additionally, not only was God with his people Israel as a whole, he was also with David. Look at verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, he says, David, you were a shepherd boy. You were not much of anything. He doesn't say it that way, but it's this idea of you were just a shepherd boy. I've taken you and elevated you from being a shepherd boy where you shepherd the flocks or the sheep, and now I've put you in place where you're a prince or a king, and now you're to shepherd the people of God. And so saying, David... I've been with you through your journey. I've been with my people through their journey. The reality is God had always been at home among his people. He's been with them every step of the way. He's protected them from their enemies. He talks about how the enemies would be subdued and, and handled and cut down and all of that. All of Scripture. I want you to hear this. All of Scripture is about God's desire to dwell with his people. Or perhaps you should phrase it this way, his desire for his people to dwell with him. And what I mean by that is think back to Genesis 3, right? 
In Genesis 3, we saw that Adam and Eve had committed sin and they were exiled or taken out of the garden. And yet God did not stop there because he said, there's a coming king who's going to bring you so that you can be back with me. And so the idea is that God's always desired for us to be with him. Even though sin interrupts it in the garden, it's restored by Jesus Christ. And ultimately, those that are followers of Jesus will be in his presence around his throne. All of scripture points to our, our need to be with God and his desire to dwell with us. We sang a moment ago about Emmanuel, right? Does anybody know what the word Emmanuel means? God with us. God with us. Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. God has always dwelled with his people. We need to remember that God has never been confined to a temple. God has never been confined to a church building. Maybe you need to hear this. God has never been confined to a single nation. God has never been confined to a worship service. God is omnipresent. He dwells where his people are. And you're like, they had instructions to build the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies and the most holy place. And they were to put the Ark of the Covenant there. The idea being that it symbolized God's presence and his throne. But the reality is God has always been in charge of everything. I was trying this week to remember a title of a book, and I can't remember what it was, and it was written almost 50 years ago because I'm just an old dude, but it was a book, and I started looking on Amazon, and there's contemporary books that are written similar to it. I've not read this book, but here's the title of one of them. It's called My Teacher Sleeps in School. And I remember a book like that where these kids, and Alicia is a teacher, maybe you can relate to it, this idea that kids, if they run into their teacher in public sphere, it's confusing to them, elementary kids, because they think their teacher lives at the schoolhouse. That's where she stays. Like, and so the whole story tells this thing of they're trying to figure out, does she live somewhere else? Does she live at school? No, she lives at school. And then they find out, no, she really doesn't live at school. All right? How silly, of a, would, how silly would it be for us to think that God just dwells in a church building? Like, okay, now I'm, I'm at the house. God's not here. I can do whatever I want to. Uh, no, the reality is God is everywhere. God is with his people. This coming king, I've alluded to this already. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this about Jesus. The word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. I want to ask a couple of questions. The truth of the matter is that God has always dwelled with his people. So there's a couple of questions I want to ask you in relation to that. The first one is this. It should be on the screen. In what ways do you find comfort knowing that God dwells among his people? Here's some possible answers. God's close to us. He's near. He's accessible. He, he meets our needs. He loves us. He understands us. He relates to us. There could be other things. Like, but how does that bring you comfort? The second question, in what ways are you challenged by the thought that God is dwelling among his people? You're like, how's that challenging? How's that difficult? Like, I can only think of positive things. Let me list some things that could be challenging for some of us. To know that God dwells among his people means that we are, to, we are called to abide or dwell in him. And if we're to abide or dwell in him, the only way we do that is through obedience, so the reality is this, that God desires for us to dwell with him, and for us to dwell with him requires obedience, and therefore, knowing that God is with you, 
as you reflect on that, are you living a life of obedience? So those are my questions. As it relates to God has always dwelled with his people, we now transition to the next point. And what I want us to see is that part of God dwelling with his people is about his provision and his protection and his providence in our lives. And so that's the second point. God promises to provide a safe home for his people. Look back at verse 8. In verse 8, he's recounting to David what all he's done for him. And in verse 8, he says to David that he's cut off all of his enemies. This idea of cutting off means to eliminate. It means to destroy. It means to kill. It means to do away with. And he's saying, David, I am with you. I'm getting rid of your enemies. I'm bringing safety and provision and protection and a safe home. In verse 9, we see he promises the same thing to the nation of Israel. He says in verse 9 that he's appointing a place and he's going to put his people Israel there and he's going to plant them and they're going to dwell there. They're not going to be disturbed any longer that violent men won't have their way with them. He's providing a safe place for them. In verse 10, there's a repeat and it says that he's going to subdue all of their enemies. What he's telling him is this. It's not time to build my temple yet because there's a lot of of your enemies around. I'm going to first take care of your enemies. There will be safety and provision and protection. And then at that time, Solomon will come in and build the temple. Now let's think for just a minute though. Let's go back to our audience. I said Chronicles was written when? After the exile. After the temple's been destroyed. After they've been taken into captivity by another nation. And you could be saying, but God, you said that violent people would no longer attack us. Where is that safe place you provided for us? The reality is, sometimes whenever we sin, God brings consequences and discipline that's less than favorable in our own opinion. But the reality is, he's driving us back to his arms of safety. And so here they are, the people that are reading and hearing God's word from the chronicler, and they're listening to it, and it's a reminder that God is faithful, that while they were disobedient and they were taken into exile, they're back here in the holy city, and that God was providing provision and protection. The reality of God's protection and safety does not necessarily mean that we won't face difficulty and hardship. And so whenever I say that God provides a safe home for his people, I'm not saying that life is easy. I'm not saying that it's a walk in the park. I'm not saying that it's free from correction. The reality is safety is not pain-free. Safety is not ease. Safety does not mean nothing goes wrong. The reality is we live in a sinful, broken world. Issues come along, but there is peace and comfort that carries us when we face those difficulties. I see, I've said her name once, I'm going to say her name again. I, I look at Alicia and she's shaking her head, yes, a bunch right now. I was with Alicia and her family and Michael was in the room. He just didn't feel like talking to anybody that evening. When Michael was in the ER and they said, we need to take you by helicopter to Temple. And, and we heard it could be aneurysm. And so here are the people of Israel. They're back in Jerusalem. They no longer have a Jewish king. They have a Persian king. The temple is no longer standing. They need to rebuild it. Their future is uncertain. But hearing these words would remind them of the hope that's found in God. You see, just as God had raised up David to provide safe home and safe place for his people, God would do it again through the coming king. 
What does it mean to have a safe home with God? Here it is. To have a safe home with God is to be in right relationship with the Lord. And to be in right relationship with the Lord necessitates us repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus as our Savior. See, the Bible is very clear. A hundred percent of us as humans will go our own way. We will sin. We will make our own choices that go contrary to God's will and God's plan. That God has set an expectation and that expectation is perfection. And the reality is all of us fall drastically short of that expectation. And because of that, just like Adam and Eve, we are exiled out of God's presence. And short of him inviting us back into his presence, there is no hope for us whatsoever. And the good news is that a king was coming and his name is Jesus. That this king Jesus would come and defeat Satan and sin and death and the grave and hell itself. And the way that Jesus did that is he did what you and I cannot do. He lived a perfect sinless life. He was tempted like you and I are, yet as the son of God he did not give in to that temptation and that sin. And he lived a perfect life. Unlike us, he did not deserve death, and yet he willingly went to a cross and died on the cross for our sins. And the reason he did that was because that's payment for our sins. What we deserve, he took on himself. And because of that, he was able to then offer to us forgiveness of our sins. The good news is that he didn't just die on a cross and put in a grave and we kind of forget about him or we worship him at a shrine and his body is still there decaying. No, the good news is that three days later, Jesus was raised to life, overcoming sin and death and the grave, raising as the victorious one, thereby offering to us the opportunity for our sins to be forgiven. So do you want a safe place with God? I'm not saying a safe place with God is living in America, voting the right way, having the right morals and the right ethics, not killing your next door neighbor, giving money to the church, being a good person, going to the PTA meetings, having a grandpappy that's a pastor, memorizing a verse or two, and sitting on a pew on Sunday mornings. No, the reality is the way that we come to a safe place with God is by saying yes to Jesus as our Savior, turning from our sins and trusting in him. And so the people of God have a safe place because they have trusted in him for salvation. See, our world is broken. Just like those people who stood there in the city of Jerusalem, seeing that it was all broken and in shambles, the reality is the king was coming and he would bring salvation. The reality for us is even though we live in a broken world, Jesus is coming again to make it all right again. I don't have time to read it, but they can throw it on the screen. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. We see that even in the Old Testament, we're promised that Jesus is coming back and making things right. He's going to make a home for us where there'll be no more death. He'll wipe away every tear. Death will be overcome, and we will be in the presence of God. I want us to be really careful when we hear this phrase about God promises to provide safe home for his people. It's not about a promise to America. It's not about a promise to the nation of Israel. It's not about a promise to any nation. It's a promise to the people of God. And as I said a moment ago, safe home does not equal pain-free, easy. Rather, it's the fact that God is with us. You see, God promised David that Israel will be disturbed no more by their enemies. Yet for a few hundred years later, they would be thrown into captivity. And so I want us to reflect on a couple of questions. If God promises and provides us a safe home for his people, how 
are you going to address this when it happens? Does facing difficulties in life mean that God's not providing us with a safe home? Those are questions that should be on the screen. Does facing difficulties in life mean that God's not providing us with a safe home? The second question is, how does the hope of heaven make walking through this life easier? You know, the older I get, the more I realize the hope of heaven is that much sweeter. This world is broken. This world has fallen apart. The older I get, my body begins to fall apart. But the good news is that we have an ultimate safe place to be. Those of us that are believers in Jesus being able to go to heaven at the end of time. The safest and best place to be is in the will of the Father. My question is, are you living life in the will of the Father? Here's the last point. As it relates to these homes, the reality is this home that we've talked about, this home of safety and provision that God gives to us is only built through the coming king. I want us to finish by focusing on the significance of the end of verse 10. The end of verse 10 in 1 Chronicles 17 says this, Moreover, God says, I declare to you, David, that the Lord will build you a house. You see, instead of David building for God, God would build for David. The reality is he's not building for David. He's building for all of the world. It's not a temple. It's not a palace. But rather, it's a dynasty that would last forever. The beginning point of the dynasty of David would be Solomon. Solomon would build the temple for God. God would establish Solomon's temple forever. It goes on to say that a descendant of David would reign forever over God's kingdom forever. Again, the audience must have been confused. They're like, God, you said that you were going to bring a king that would reign forever through David. And the reality is, there ain't no king. What's going on here? God's saying that a king is coming. A king is coming. If you were to look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see the genealogy of Jesus, and it says that Jesus is the son of David. Thereby, we see that a king is coming just as God promised, and therefore, this dynasty, this reigning forever, is less about Solomon and David and all about Jesus. I want us to look real quickly to Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. The birth of Jesus is foretold in Luke chapter 1, and it says this, that Jesus will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of who? His father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The house of Jacob, the house of Israel, at that point, it's not about the nation state of Israel. It's about the people of God. He would reign forever. You see, God kept his covenant with David and has changed our lives. Through Jesus, David's son, we are being built up into the house of God. I want us to look at one final passage. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Here's what Paul says. He's talking to the body of Christ, to the church. He says that we're one in Christ. And he says there at the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of what? The household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ 
Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In these verses we see the household of God, the literal household of God in the sense that we are God's people and also the household of God because it says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. At the end of the day, it's not about 1 Chronicles 17. It's not about a temple. At the end of the day, 1 Chronicles is not about a dynasty, but it's about the king. You see, Jesus came to bring redemption, and he's coming again to make all things new. Because of this coming king, we have hope. I want to ask us two more questions. And that is this. In what ways does your life reflect the fact that you are a part of the household of faith? If you're a follower of Jesus, does your life reflect that? Does the fruit of your life demonstrate that you're a part of the household of God? Because remember I said part of God dwelling with his people necessitates us abiding with him. Think what John 14 and 15 talks about. And we need to abide with him, which involves obedience to his word, to his commandments. If you love Jesus, he says that we will obey him. So the question is, how much does your life reflect the fact that you're a part of the household of God. The second one says this, in what ways is the Spirit leading us to repent so that we can be the dwelling place for God? I I want us to, uh, don't don't worry about putting the verse on the screen. I'm going to read the verse out loud, and then I'm going to look at this question again. In Ephesians chapter 2, the last verse I read, it says, in him, Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word you there is plural, not singular. And so it's not saying that I solely, individually, independently are the temple of God, but rather collectively, we as the church are the temple of God. And so that's why I've worded the phrase that, like I did, in what ways is the Spirit leading us collectively as the church to repent so that we can be the dwelling place for God? As you live a life of obedience or lack thereof, you impact the rest of your church family and vice versa. So I don't want us to just make it individualistic and say, as long as I follow Jesus, then that's all that really matters. Don't get me wrong, you should follow Jesus. But rather, collectively, we should be the household of faith, encouraging and strengthening and sharpening one another. You hear me talk quite a bit about D-groups. And uh, we have... We have hope groups that are vitally important to what we do here at our church. We have equipping classes which are vitally important to what we do as a church. And then we have D groups as well. And the reality is what I'm about to describe of the D group should also be happening in equipping classes and hope groups. And that is we should be accountable to one another. If we say we're going to do something and live for Jesus and we're not doing it, we should welcome each other into our lives so that we can encourage each other and build each other up to live for Jesus. God's building us up into the temple of God. Everything we've looked at so far in this series is pointing to the fact that the king did come and his name is Jesus. He came to bring redemption and restoration and forgiveness of sin. And he's coming again to bring his bride unto himself. And in the meantime, we are called to be the household of faith with and for each other. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and at the end of that prayer, we're going to respond with a time of, uh, of response. We're going to sing a couple of songs, and during the second song, we're going to pass offering plates, and if you've come prepared to give uh, an offering and or you want to drop your connection card or anything in there, you can do that when they are passed. 
And in either one of the songs, you respond as God, as God leads you. It could be that you need to mark a decision on your card or prayer request on your card. It could be that you need to come and pray here at the altar. You need to come and pray with me. You may need to grab a friend and have them come pray with you. It could be that you just sit there and worship God for who he is and respond to his leadership in your life. What is the Holy Spirit leading you to do today? And are you willing to say yes to him? Let me lead us in prayer.